Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So I think because of these early efforts, you know, the British were never able to regain that, that narrative about the war. And I think that just started from there. For the rest of the war, they were never able to really get the public opinion behind the war, behind that, that, that conflict to, to fully marshal its energies and resources to, to fight in the, in the colonies. That's Major Patrick Naughton discussing how the Provincial Congress in Massachusetts attempted to control the narrative following the battles of Lexington and Concord. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode was brought to you by Casemate, publishers of The Quaker and the Gamecock, Nathaniel Green, Thomas Sumter, and The Revolutionary War for the South by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is Major Patrick Naughton of the United States Army, talking about the importance of information and controlling a narrative in the aftermath of the battles of Lexington and Concord. One of the great things I love about this show, and one of the things I love about reading and writing for the Journal of the American Revolution, is that it's very much an open forum for a lot of different people from many different walks of life, but one of the real privileges I have on this show is speaking with our men and women in uniform, uh, who not only have a uh, a life and career of military service, but who can apply the valuable lessons they've learned in that service to their particular historic topic, in our case, uh, the American Revolutionary Era. So our interview today with Major Naughton is really impressive. Because he's going to uh, really dissect the importance of of information, the transmission of information, you know, fact and fiction and that sort of gray area in between uh, from a different perspective than we usually get, uh, which is a, a military perspective from a person who's dealt with this, not just in the 18th century context, but of course, in the 21st century as well. Uh, he's a wonderful man. It's a wonderful article, of course, available at www.allthingsliberty.com. I'd encourage you to go there and read his article, as well as all of the people here we feature here on Dispatches. Uh, but we're going to see the value of that play out tonight in the conversation we're about to hear. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Major Patrick Naughton. Patrick Naughton, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Tell us about your background. Sure. So I'm a Army officer um, major, and I'm uh, stationed in Washington, D.C., where I'm serving as a legislative liaison to the Senate. I have a bachelor's in history from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and a master's in history from the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where I was an Art of War scholar. What first drew your interest into this topic? 
Sure. So I've always been interested in the American Revolution. Um, I think it's one of the defining moments in the world, really, for military history. Uh, what first drew me into to this topic is just looking at the contemporary environment that we're in right now and all of the misinformation campaigns on all sides of both conflict and political arenas and how people claim that this is something new. Um, whereas my first article for, for a jar, I wrote about Concord and Lexington. And while doing that research, um, I discovered that incident with the Kiro and how they used that information campaign against, against Great Britain in the initial start of the conflict. And so that, that made me realize that this is nothing new, that this has been going on for centuries. So that's really what gave me the interest for this article. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, what was the Provincial Congress? Sure. So the Provincial Congress, uh, many don't know, have not heard that term before. Uh, so it's just a term uh, between 1775 and 1776. It was used to describe their primary revolutionary body that was managing the transition of power from traditional colonial legislative assemblies to the independent state legislators, which you know, then became known the, the Continental Congress. How did the Massachusetts public react immediately following the events of Lexington and Concord? Sure. So, you know, I, I was stationed in Massachusetts and I lived there for three years. Um, and that's actually where I started my interest in this battle of Lexington and Concord. So I kind of have you know been in the area, steeped in some of the local history and so on. And what I found is that like, like any conflict, um, when it starts, there's obviously people who immediately take sides. I think in Massachusetts, you had obviously loyalists who immediately took that side. You had the supporters of the engagement in the revolution who immediately took that side. And then you've got a large body of the population, as you do in any conflict, who really don't care either way and just want to be left alone to live their lives in peace and do business and raise their families and so on. So I think it was no different in Massachusetts. I think it was the same reaction. I think there was definitely shock and uh, disbelief on all sides. One of the things I really found interesting about the battle itself is that you know, many of the provincials were very well-known marksmen, and yet the British casualty count was relatively low when really it should have been quite high. So I've always wondered if it was just a sheer shock of firing on these uniformed British troops. Um, I guess definitely with the outbreak of the actual hostilities, it did finally force people to choose sides publicly. After the engagement, when the dust settles, Thomas Gage will report his account. Uh, what does he say in his report? First, I think uh, Gage, you know, very interesting character for that time period. I think in his initial report, you know, he there was a slight delay in getting it back to Britain. I don't think he quite gave it the attention it deserved to speedily get it back to Great Britain. And I think it doesn't really convey the true defeat that had happened. I think he kind of tried to paint it as this, you know, small engagement, and he didn't really paint the real gravity of, of, of the situation back to the leadership in, in Great Britain. I mean, his side of the story tells of, uh, the British being fired upon first and them not being the aggressors. And I don't think he really portrayed it as a defeat that it was. Whereas once time went on and they realized that the loyalists as well as the British army was besieged and forced into Boston, you know, it could no longer really be hidden for what it, what it really was. How did the provincial Congress see this same event? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, there's some primary source documents that show the provincial Congress you know, wrestling with uh, stories that Gage was being told, and some of them felt that Gage was being told lies. So that kind of initiated the the campaign to get that information to Great Britain first for what they saw was the truth. Um, 
militarily the event, you know, confined the British Army and the Tories to Boston. It uh, effectively removed Great Britain as a governing entity over that area, and it finally gave the provincials that common cause to rally behind and accelerated their need to, you know, quickly form an army. But I think most importantly, the Provincial Congress saw the potential behind it that they could use it to sway that British public opinion against the war, um, which is why they collected the sworn dispositions, why they used that to feed the local newspapers, um, and then it wrote that official narrative, which they were quickly trying to get back to Great Britain before Gage's report. How does the Provincial Congress attempt to influence public opinion, not at home, but in Britain? As you're you know, combing through the records and reading the primary source documents, you, you really see for what it was, and it was a deliberate information campaign against Great Britain. Um, again, they collected these sworn dis, uh, dis, dispositions. Um, some of them were, they weren't inaccurate, but they were definitely embellished in, in, in many cases. Um, and all of them painted the British as being the complete aggressors. They're you know, committing um, atrocities against uh, innocent farmers, etc., and so on. Um, so they took those. They, you know, those fed into the local newspaper articles that were being uh, distributed throughout the colonies, and then there was an actual official narrative uh, that was created as well. So all of that was packaged together, you know, placed on this ship that was purposely designed just to get that information there quickly and faster than the, than the, um, than the British could, whereas Gage just put it on another ship that was going back anyway, a cargo ship. So whereas the American side, you know, was literally a ship you know, stripped down to go as fast as it could to get to Great Britain – with the purpose of putting it in Lee and Franklin's hands, uh, Franklin had already left, unfortunately. And the letter, you know, the instructions that came along with that packet was, hey, get this in front of local media, get this in front of um, influential people in the community so that we can get our message first before um, Gage's message, message gets there. What are the specific goals that the Congress hoped to achieve by undertaking these tactics? You know, qu- quite frankly, I think their goal really was to get their narrative out there first. Um, I think they understood that, you know, in, in comparison to, the, to today's world where you can have instant messages put out there, uh, back then, whoever gained that initiative first tended to kind of own that informational operational environment and be able to continue that message much easier. So I think they really just wanted to get their story first to gain, gain the initiative in the informational environment. Absolutely. How were their efforts received in Britain? Yeah, you know, there's there's tons of source material. There's uh, British newspapers, there's diaries, there's there's letters, a number of things. And they were really quite successful at it. Um, they did beat them there, obviously. And Great Britain's response was to basically they told the people, hey, let's just wait and see what Gage is going to tell us. They did not immediately try to counter that response. And the little efforts that they did to try to counter that response Lee was quick to respond to it and say, hey, hey, I have these documents. I have these sworn depositions. I have these articles from the colonies. You can come to this exact address and you can come and inspect them yourself. So surprisingly, Great Britain was pretty quiet in in responding and waiting for Gage's report. And then when Gage's report finally arrived, you know, it was so lackluster that it didn't really give them much to to fight that narrative that the um, Americans were uh, presenting. And really, you know, the, the British economy was so closely tied to the Americas and the West Indies that there was many influential people who did not want a war, did not see the economic interest to, to fighting that war. And there were also many who had a close affinity to, to, to the colonies and did not understand what the fight about, was about at all. Um, so I think because of these early efforts, you know, the British were never able to regain that, that narrative about the war. And I think that just started 
from there, for the rest of the war, they were never able to really get the public opinion behind the war, behind that, that, that conflict to, to fully marshal its energies and resources to, to fight in the, in the colonies. What does this episode reveal to us about the larger revolutionary era? So, you know, like I said in the beginning, uh, I think the American Revolution is one of the most impact, impactful conflicts in world history. Um, its effects are still being felt to this day. I mean, I'm 100% agree with that. And I think what it really reveals about the revolutionary era, era is that, you know, these were extremely smart and, and talented leaders on both sides, and they understood the power of information. They understood the power of public opinion and how they could harness that to help or hurt um, either side's cause. So I think what it really teaches, you know, modern historians as well as military professionals is just a perfect example of how the successful use of information can influence conflict and how it can influence actual tangible results on the, on the, on the battlefield. Patrick Naughton, thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.